You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rissman, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast, a show all about learning how to build better products and businesses through conversations with leaders in the worlds of design, product management, startups, marketing, and more. In this episode, Intercom co-founder and chief strategy officer, Des Trainer sits down with the one and only Jared Spool. Jared and his work really need no introduction, but for formality's sake, he founded User Interface Engineering, the leading research, training, and consulting firm specializing in product usability. Having spent the past 28 years at UIE helping clients solve their design problems, he's keenly aware of where many UX designers struggle. And to bridge that gap, Jared's co-founded a unique school, Center Center, to produce a new generation of industry-ready designers. The inaugural class at Center Center begins its journey on October 17th. In his chat with Des, Jared explains why recent design graduates struggle in the workplace. What we found was that while students knew had a lot of book knowledge, they, they knew how to do design as it was prescribed in, in books. Uh, they didn't have a lot of field knowledge. They didn't have a lot of experience. They, didn't, they couldn't do very much. How Center Center is partnering with companies to change that? And we're going to have the companies tell us what are the hot topics that they really wish students came out of the program knowing that we couldn't possibly have known in the past year when we were developing all the curriculum for the program. And when it comes to your own company, why all parts of it must have an appreciation of design to succeed at the next level. The ones that have met this are producing a much higher grade of product. They command higher revenues, they command higher prices, they, they get more customer loyalty. They win on all the factors because design is really the last ground to compete on. So without further ado, let's hand things over to Des and the studio with Jared Spool. Jared, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you. So you're still involved at UAE, obviously, um, but I believe you're also spending a lot of time on a new initiative, which is, I guess, confusingly called the Center Center. Could you walk us through what it is and maybe what the thinking behind the name is? It's a new school for uh, industry-ready UX designers. And when we were coming up with it, we were thinking that it plays into being multiple types of the center. A good school is a place where community and education and industry sort of come together. So we see it as a place where all those things come together to, to, to do good work. Uh, the way we've structured the school, the students are going to be very active in the community. They're going to be very active in industry uh, throughout their education. Uh, but at the same time, it's a place where new thinking and new ideas emerge from. So things come from the center, things come to the center. So two types of center. So therefore, right. center, center. <laughs> I like it. And just for our listeners, that's I'll spell out the URL just so people can find it. It's center, C-E-N-T-E-R-C-E-N-T-R-E dot com. That's where you'll find it. Um, so one of the things when you land there is you talk about this, uh, but creating this sort of new generation of designers who are, I think the word used is like industry ready. Um, more so, I'd say, than their predecessors. Uh, what does that mean for you? Like, what's the difference between like, an industry-ready designer and somebody who, say, graduates from a typical art and design college? We are definitely not a typical art and design college. <laughs> I'm uh, sure. We are without art. 
um, uh, uh, we are just designed. Uh, and we're, we're a vocational school. And so it was very much about making people ready for work. You know, universities were not built for trades. Universities were built to make educators, actually. The first universities were built in the 16th, 15th, 16th centuries to spread the word of the church. And what they needed were people who could teach the word of God. So they created a, a system for, for producing teachers, not for producing people who work in trade work. And that structure of those universities hasn't changed much since the 16th century. We still use the same basic uh, constructs. And so when my partner and I, Leslie Jensen Inman, started on this project, the first thing we did was, you know, we do what you do when you have a good project. We went out and did research and we started talking to hiring managers because we feel that while students are a primary customer, so are the, the hiring managers. If we don't produce graduates that hiring managers want to hire as a trade school, we will fail. So uh, we have to make very desirable hiring managers. So we went out and we talked to hiring managers. And, and what we wanted to know was when you hire somebody, what is it you look for? And in particular, when you're hiring students, what is it you look for? Or what is it that you feel you're not getting? And what we found was that while students knew, had a lot of book knowledge, they, they knew how to do design as it was prescribed in, in books, uh, they didn't have a lot of field knowledge. They didn't have a lot of experience. They, didn't, they couldn't do very much. And, and the result is, is that they're not getting jobs coming right out of school. A lot. We have more jobs than ever. We, we estimate in the United States there's probably somewhere between 70 and 80,000 UX positions open right now. But students coming right out of school are having a lot of trouble filling those jobs because they're not ready. So much so that companies like IBM have built entire institutions uh, in Austin, Texas. IBM has, a, has a, in essence, a school where they take students who come out of design school and they give them another six months of training, not on things specific to IBM. That's only about three weeks of the six months, but just on basic how to work in a workplace set of skills. So we realized very early on that in order to make students ready to, to sit down and do the job the day they get there, they had to have a lot of experience. So we ended up building an experience-based program that students work on projects, real-life projects, projects that are assigned, projects that come from companies and, and community-based projects, uh, and uh, they last three to five months in length. They work on them as a team. They are not expected to project lead them at the beginning because project leadership is a learned skill. So, so we don't throw them at the wolves and then wonder why their projects were so poorly managed like so many school projects end up being. Uh, and they come out with two years basically of experience out of the program. And as a result, they are much more attractive to the companies that are looking to hire them. And when you say like um, experience, like is it specific? Like you know, do you have like modules on things like how to create a persona, how to like uh, you know do how to assess the site navigation, how to like whatever wireframe, how to do a usability test? Is that the sort of stuff you cover? Oh, that's yeah, that's just the beginning, right? right. So you know, the first course is information architecture. Uh, the second course is sketching and prototyping. The third course is user research practices. Then we get into front-end development. Uh, but then we go from there. We have courses on leadership, on critique, on design studios, on personas and storytelling, on workshop facilitation, the business of user experience, 
how to design for social. So we, ha we have 30 courses that they take over the period of two years. And it is full-time, right? They, they do move to Tennessee and enroll there? Yep, yep, full-time. We have, we have a lovely facility in downtown Chattanooga, and the students uh, live in Chattanooga and go to school five days a week. It, we, we modeled it after a full-time job. One of the things the hiring managers told us is the th one of the things they have to deal with is that a lot of students come out of school and for, for many years, they have been taught that if they can sit still for an hour and a half, they can go play Frisbee. Right. And because that's the basic structure of school. And so the, the hiring managers were telling us that they have trouble just getting these people to sit and work for an entire day. Yeah. And so we decided to fix that problem by school will be structured as an entire day. So instead of taking multiple classes, each one is three hours or an hour and a half or whatever it is during the day, you take one class for three weeks and it starts at 830 in the morning and it ends at five. And there's no homework. You do the work at school and then you go and you reinvigorate over the weekend and then you come back to school ready to work. Uh, and that's the program. It's uh, it's interesting. Does the uh, does the feedback cycle like so? I know uh, obviously uh, you know you're you're such a track record in research. You're going to be like you know your first real sign of feedback from this cohort, which are enrolling soon. I guess it's like two years two years time is when you'll know how that worked out. Is that correct? No, no, no. We've built feedback in all the way. Right. So the beauty of it is is that we you know in a lot of programs when the companies finally get involved. It's often just as the students are graduating. Right. Maybe there's a career day. Maybe there's a capstone project at the end that a company sponsors. Uh, in this program, companies are involved all the way through. They supply projects for students to work on, so they're watching the students go through. Right. Uh, we have every three weeks, we have a new class starting because classes are three weeks long. And the first two days of the classes is an industry expert comes in and delivers a two-day industry-grade workshop on the topic of the course. So, for example, we have Abby Covert coming in and talking about information architecture for two days and introducing that to the students. And, and Dana Chisnell is introducing user research. She wrote the Handbook of Usability Testing, and now she's the, one of the highest-placed UX people mm -hmm. in the federal government. And so we have all these industry experts coming in for the first two days. And so we're inviting the companies to come and participate in those workshops, while at the same time, they get a chance to meet the students and see their progress. And the goal is, is that the students are getting feedback from those folks, from the people they work on projects, from mentors that they're assigned to who have volunteered their time. They get that feedback all the way through the program. And we're getting feedback from those folks saying, yeah, this is the type of person I want to hire. These people get, are getting the skills they're not, or I would like to see this, or I would like to see that. And we've actually kept the last six months of the program undefined at this point. We start to define it about 12 months into the program. We, we leave them undefined because we want to be able to catch things that are new and emerging that we didn't even know people needed to know. You know, for example, machine learning is becoming a hot topic and there's, there's just this nascent idea of how do you design for environments where there's a, a, a machine learning engine behind it. Well, by the time we finish this program, that's probably going to be a really hot topic, but we don't even know how to structure the course yet. So we're going to spend the next year researching what sort of things, and we're going to have the companies tell us what are the hot topics that they really wish students came out of the program knowing that we couldn't possibly have known in the past year when we were developing all the curriculum for the program. 
And so we can keep it very adaptable and make sure it works. And we're going to get feedback all the way through. And if we're not producing students that the companies are interested in, we're going to find that out almost immediately. Have you thought about the exact opposite problem? What if everyone gets poached within like six months? Yeah, that's actually a big problem for us. Yeah. <laughs> because according to the state of Tennessee, where we're authorized to have a school, that's technically considered a dropout, even if they are poached Ooh. and given an amazing salary. Yeah. And, and it's a weird thing, right? Because the entire purpose of the... Uh, of the higher ed commission, the people who authorize us, is to develop uh, skills. So if we're developing the skills at a faster rate than than the program, mm-hmm. they still consider us a dropout. So we, ha- we, have a, we have a political battle to fight there, but we're also going to work with the hiring companies to make sure that they understand that they will, uh, uh, it will be to the student's benefit and to our benefit and I think to their benefit if we come up with a way. So what we'll probably end up doing when that happens, hopefully it won't happen after six months, uh, I think, it'll, it, but it could happen in the last six months, is we'll work on a work-study program where they actually get credit for work and can finish out their program there. But we'll want to make sure the curriculum remains intact because it's to everybody's benefit that that happens. On a slightly like sort of higher level along these lines, like something like I think the design industry is torn over is the sort of issue of certification of sorts. Like so Today, anyone can be a designer. Basically, you're a designer if you put it in your Twitter bio at this point. And so we have like probably more more people saying they're designers than we have designers. And then the other on the other side, you have folks like yourself who have now like produced a entire curriculum that like that outputs a pretty well defined industry ready designer. Do you think it would be advantageous for like UX design to move to a world of some degree of certification? Yeah, I think it's going to happen. But so yeah, when you talk about certification, you have to talk about the, the experience of certification. And everybody always focuses on the person who's being certified. But that's actually not the beneficiary of certification. Yeah. The real beneficiary of certification is the hiring manager. They are the ones who need to be able to tell whether this person is certified or not. And right now, there is an implied certification that comes with what school you went to. Yeah. If you know the curriculum of a school, usually the only way you know the curriculum of a school is if you've gone to the school. Mm-hmm. But if you know the curriculum of a school and you know that someone's gone through that program and gotten their diploma or their degree or whatever it is, then in essence, they're certified. And they, they are certified in a way that people who didn't go to the program are not certified. So certification already exists. And what we need to talk about is not do we have certification or not have certification, but what do the hiring managers really need? Right. And this has, been, this has been a key piece. So one of the things that I learned when we were talking to hiring managers is that almost always they are completely surprised at what students don't know when they come out of school. Right? It's like you get a degree from some institution. It's, let's say it's a, a, a bachelor's degree in information design or interaction design or visual design. And the students come in and then they give them an assignment and they can't do the basics. They don't know how to do user research or they don't know how to do other sort of things that everybody assumes that if you're, you're trained as a designer, you would know these things. But the curriculum doesn't ever say that. And what we, what we realized was that there's an implied contract between the school and the hiring managers of what's going to be there, but no one ever states what's, what the actual contractual agreement is of this is actually the skills we're committed to teaching these students. Therefore, when you hire them, they will know how to do these things. Right. And the only time you see that work 
again, is uh, we met hiring managers who were very specific to programs. Like we met a hiring manager who loves Carnegie Mellon's program or another hiring manager who loves the School of Visual Arts. And when we dug a little deeper, what we learned was that was the school they went to. Yeah. So, so they knew the contract because they'd already been through it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've decided to make the contract explicit. And what we've done is for every course, we've created competencies. Competencies are demonstrable skills. And in order for a student to pass the course, they actually have to demonstrate to us that they can do those things. And so, for example, for the user research course, they have to be able to observe a usability test. They have to be able to moderate a usability test. They have to be able to design the plan for the test. They have to be able to uh, recruit participants. They have to be able to synthesize results. We break all those up into independent competencies. And then as the students go through their projects, they do those things. And our full-time faculty, what we call facilitators, though some folks refer to them as unicorn wranglers, mm -hmm. uh, um, our full-time faculty are basically uh, monitoring the students' progress through the competencies and looking at the upcoming project work and saying, oh, well, you have a chance to practice your usability testing skills here. Let's have you do the test plan for this project and you run it through. And then when they have completed that, the satisfaction of the of the facilitator, they get that checked off. You think of it like merit badges, right? You, right. you, you have to do all the steps, you get the merit badge. So they get, that, they get to pass the course at that point. And we have 30 courses. So there's going to be 30 merit badges, 30 sets of competencies. And the competencies start to overlap. When you get to the user research course, because we've already done sketching and prototyping, we've already done information architecture, you're going to have to do usability tests of prototypes of, of navigation of a website, for example. Yeah. So we start to combine these and demonstrate these. And we can publish the list of competencies that every student has to pass in order to graduate. And the students can share and specifically speak to the work and how they passed it and what projects they did and what those projects were. And that becomes part of their portfolio. So we create this explicit contract of what it means to be a designer and what we think it is. And a, and a hiring manager can disagree with that. They can say, you know what, I'm, that, that's not that exciting to me. But at the same time, they can actually say, no, that actually is exciting to me. I really want this. And the ones who are excited by our curriculum, they're going to be the ones who are pleased with the people we produce. And the ones who aren't, well, we can have a conversation. Should we add that into the curriculum? Going sort of taking the broader view of UX, the days where you do a podcast about why is UX important, Jared, are, are kind of like long gone Um until you move into the murky field of maybe enterprise software, where, uh, where you know, <laughs> I, uh, you know, you wrote recently about like how like uh, companies just need to cross what you call like this like idea of a UX tipping point, and I really like how you articulate the different phases from like we brought in a UX person for a day and they showed us a wireframe all the way through to let's get serious about this and hire some professionals. But could you articulate what it is for you that is the tipping point and like what are the stages that let's say the larger companies need to go through? Yeah, so there's, there's a bunch of things that get you there, but the evolutionary stages start with what we call the UX Dark Ages, which is an organization that has never thought about UX, they never talk about UX, they're about doing the thing they do, you know, they, they, they sell gasoline, so they just sell gasoline, and that's what they think about, they don't think about how people use gasoline, they don't think about how the distributors distribute gasoline, they just, they just sell gasoline, and that's, that's all they think about, and 
it's easy to say that that well, you know, that's not a high tech product. Why, you know, why do they have UX? But it, this this day and age, that's changing, right? There, there's a company I talked to the other day in Alabama who makes water meters. These are little devices that sit on pipes that measure how much water go through. And your house has one, and it measures how much water you're taking in. And chances are your municipality bills you for that at some point. So it needs to be accurate. Well, it you know, up until a few years ago, that was a purely mechanical device. And so this was a company that was always mechanical, and they never thought about the user experience. That you know, you train the people to read the thing, you train the installers to install the thing. That's the all the user experience you have to think about. But now these are digital devices, and not only are they digital devices, but they have software in them. They have software in some sort of reading device, which which actually uses some sort of radio system to talk to it. So you, so the person who reads the meter no longer has to come in your house. They can drive by in a truck and it just tells them how much water you've been using. So now they have all this software and they're suddenly finding themselves in the software business and they're wholly ill-equipped to work in the software business. And they grew up in a, in a part of Alabama where there are no software people and there are no UX people. So now how do they navigate this, right? They don't even know where to begin. They've got this rich history, none of which had to do with any of this. And so they st they've gone from being in the dark ages to now sort of needing to think about this without really knowing anything about it. And we call that the, the spot UX phase, where, where you bring in somebody and they work on UX for a little while and then you send them away. Or you maybe you have a manager who drives a UX project yeah. until you know the rest of the organization sort of overtakes them and they get fed up and they leave. But there's no sort of concerted UX view. And then what you see, the next stage that you see is folks saying, okay, let's get serious. Let's hire designers and therefore create a design team. And therefore we need a design manager. And what we'll do is to, to serve the whole organization, we will create this internal service. So instead of using outside agencies anymore, we're going to bring that in-house. We're going to create this service that basically replicates what the outside agencies were doing for us, but at a much cheaper rate. And that's what we call design as a service, right? So it's UX design as a service inside the organization. And a lot of people think, have thought for a long time that that was the ultimate evolution, that you could get to that point. But it turns out that as we've been studying companies, that's not it at all. That's actually a midpoint. The next stage is when a team that that service has been servicing uh, realizes that design is actually critical to their success. And they get frustrated hiring that team for spot pieces as they go. So instead, what they do is they hire people from the team to actually be embedded in the project. And the difference between embedded people is that the embedded people only work on that project. And they work on that project from soup to nuts. They think about multiple releases of that product, where normally the design as a service yeah. is only thinking about the current release, and they're only working on parts of the project, and there are whole parts that they have nothing to do with and no control over and no influence over. And so the designers now have influence over this. And for some people, they thought, okay, well, that was sort of the end. That's sort of this, you know, embed in the Agile team, a bunch of designers, and you're done. But it turns out that that's not the done point. The done point goes further. And the done point happens when the team, is, or what we believe is the done point, there could be something after this, where the designers aren't the only one designing, where, where everybody on the team is now thinking of themselves as a UX person. And the example I like to give is at Netflix or any streaming video service, there are people who are in charge of making sure that the bits come off the server as fast as possible. They worry about responsiveness and bandwidth and reliability, and they, they focus on, and they're typically engineers, and their job is to make the servers and the network perform as fast as it can. 
And conventionally, we would never have referred to them as UX people. We would never, they don't have anything to do with the UX. They work on the back end, they work on this stuff. But the moment you're watching that, your favorite movie, and that little icon shows up, and the little spinner starts to spin, and your movie stops, and nothing happens, suddenly, they are UX people. Yeah. They are the most important UX people on the team in that moment. And so the last stage is what we call design-infused organizations. And a design-infused organization is where everybody sees themselves as a UX person. The performance engineers and the product managers and the lawyers who create the license agreements, everybody has some influence over the user experience and is actively working to provide the best user experience possible. And it's that organization where we see the UX tipping point. And the UX tipping point is a moment that happens when you go from the conventional approach of we will decide to ship this product at the very moment that the product is uh, technically capable of doing what we want it to do and meets the business model. That's the, that's the conventional approach, right? If it right. does those two things, we ship it. And we don't worry if the design isn't great, well, we'll fix it in the next release, right? Mm -hmm. This has been Microsoft's MO for, for three decades. Right, you know, the the the, joke, the old joke is that Microsoft's user experience doesn't get good till the third release because for the first two releases they just get it out there and working. Yeah. Right. So that's been the convention. The tipping point is when you stop shipping products, not because it technically doesn't work; it technically works fine. You stop shipping it not because the business model isn't met; it, it, it will make the money it needs to make. You stop shipping it because it's not designed well enough for your standards. That you actually use design to hold up the product. And there aren't a lot of companies that have reached this tipping point, but the ones that have met this are producing a much higher grade of product when they meet it. And as a result, they command higher revenues, they command higher prices, they, they get more customer loyalty, they win on all the factors because design is really the last ground to compete on. You, you know, technology is an even bar. You can get any technology you want. And most of it is in the cloud, so what does it matter? Which, by the way, in the cloud means on somebody else's server, just in case you were wondering. You can try and come out with the cheapest product, but cheap doesn't give you a lot of margin. So eventually, you know, and competition can come out with something cheaper, which means you have to lower your prices. So you're always in this game of seeing who can drive their costs down. Or you can produce the highest quality product. And, you know, reliability, maintainability, those sorts of things are now basic stakes. So what's left? Design, the user experience, being able to compete on the user experience. This is why the Nest beat Honeywell at a 40-year-old business that it was the market leader on, which is thermostats. And the question to ask is, why didn't Honeywell come out with the Nest? In fact, Honeywell was completely surprised by the Nest. They had nothing in R&D that was even close to the Nest. Okay, They had no skills in-house, nothing. The Nest came along, and it was not from a competitor of Honeywell's that was identified until the moment it showed up. So, and this happens all the time, right? Motorola, Nokia ran the cell phone market. And then mm -hmm. suddenly Apple, not in the phone business, takes over the cell phone market and drives what the market is, right? And it's all based on user experience. And so no company wants to be the next Honeywell, yeah. right? The water meter company does not want to be the next Honeywell. So what do they do? How do they get past that? And how do they make sure that some competitor doesn't just march in and take over and, you know, sell themselves to Google for $3.2 billion when that $3.2 billion valuation could have been Honeywell's? Yeah. 
I mean, you know, do companies need to get their asses kicked to realize this? Or has anyone ever successfully maintained a position when there has been no incumbent threat? Like, I worry that, like, you know, to, like, you know, your enterprise-grade person who's made billions of dollars thus far off, like, you know, hardware water meters, you could wave your arms and try to get them worried about the next generation of technology. But part of it is, you know, seeing is believing is, is going to be part of this, right? No. These days, you can talk to most boards and they, they're panicked because they see how the next, if they have any sort of brains, they see how the next scenario played out. Right. A bunch of Apple, ex-Apple dudes came in and found a market that no one was talking about mm-hmm. and just took it over and defined what the next generation of product wants to be. I mean, it used to be we just used healthcare.gov in the United States, right? right. Healthcare.gov was this lovely website that failed so badly that, that you just... You could just walk up to people and say, do you want to be the next healthcare.gov? And they go, no. I say, okay, then you need to think about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we have a lot of examples. We have the Nest. We have the iPhone. We have, we have a ton of stuff that shows that and we can just say, you know, you guys are on par to be the next Honeywell. You're on par to be the next mm-hmm. Nokia. You're on par to be the next GM while Tesla wipes your ass right. with electric cars. So what do you want to do? Do you want to wait until a Tesla shows up in your industry? Or do you want to be the Tesla of your industry? And almost always, they they say, no, we want to be the Tesla of our industry. And then we say, okay, that's going to cost you a lot of money. (laughs) And they're like, oh, okay. And then then it becomes a business thing, right? But the reason Nest was able to do what Nest was able to do was that they didn't have to get rid of all the old people who didn't understand what they were trying to do. Right. And the problem that a company like Honeywell has is that their business was going fine until suddenly it wasn't. Yeah, it's a harder decision for Honeywell to go all in on a new, effectively competitive business against their existing revenue than it is for Nest to have zero revenue to start building something that's going to change the world or whatever, right? It is. So, you know, you just start the death clock. Yeah. Right. And, and, and just go from there. I mean, I mean, that's your that's your choice. You can say, yeah, it's too hard. Like, OK, I got a timer. When do we want to set the date? Because we'll just count down till you're dead. Right. Uh, <laughs> does, does that get their checkbooks open? Uh, no, sometimes that's fine. It's just yeah. like, let's milk it and then let's sell. I've, I've, also, I've also heard the phrase like, well, that's, the, you know, when I'm talking to CEOs who aren't uh, who aren't founders, I guess, their attitude towards these things tends to be, well, that's probably the next person's problem. Like, as in, you know, they're like, I, I fully believe that Tesla's on the way, but not under my watch. I'll be long gone before that matters, uh, which is, I yeah. guess is a, a different type of survival strategy. Yeah, I mean, this is boardroom level thinking, yeah. right? This is, the Honeywell thing was not an engineering problem. The Honeywell thing was a boardroom problem. Right, yeah. And so what... This is a whole different thing. And this is why I think things like design thinking are are catching on. You know, there isn't a management school out there now that doesn't teach a design thinking course. I personally don't know what design thinking is. It's this it, there is nothing there. It's yeah. it's fake. But executives love design thinking. It took me a long time to get my head around why executives love design thinking, but but uh they do. And as a result, they now realize that they have to find a solution out of this because even if it's not their watch, unless they're going into straight retirement, they are moving to another organization to be a CEO or an executive of another place. They, it will be on their watch somewhere. Yeah, you can run, but you can't hide. For sure. Okay, well, I think that's a good place to leave it, Jared. This has been a really fascinating chat. It's been a pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much for your time. 
Well, thank you for encouraging my behavior. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.